Um, so as a church, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, which for those of you that aren't familiar is a, an answer or a response to a letter that the church in Corinth have written to Paul. And the certain issues that they have some queries over, they're relatively new Christians and they come from a background that's pagan. And so they're trying to kind of move from a, a pagan lifestyle into a a born-again Christian lifestyle, and they have some things that they're not quite sure about. So essentially, they're writing to Paul to say, what, what do you think about this? What's your views on this? What would Jesus do, essentially? Um, today's uh, sermon I've called Have Your Cake and Eat It, because we're returning to the theme of food. Matt made a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who were here, talked about um, food that was dedicated to idol worship, when Paul was essentially saying, it doesn't matter, you can eat the food um, the idols are not are kind of important to you. This time Paul is continuing with that discussion, but he takes the answer a little bit deeper um, to, to kind of bring a, a solution to their question, really. Also, the, the church in Corinth, um, whilst they've, they've dedicated their lives to Jesus, they're, they're still kind of holding on to some of the old ways. And so uh, the, the reason I call it have your cake and eat it is because they're still trying to have the best of both worlds. Whilst the church um, is rightfully in the world, there's still aspects of the world that is in the church. And so Paul's just royally trying to, with the word, really uh, divide the two and make sure that they're sticking to the word as closely as they can. So the issue um, we're discussing today is the issue of idol worship. And Paul um, is talking them through and challenging some of their old pagan ways, um, especially connected to the, to the food. The city of Corinth, for those of you who haven't heard the history in previous messages, was a similar a city not too dissimilar from London. It was on a trade route, which meant there were lots of people coming and going. There was lots of people from all over, all over the world. It's very multicultural, very mixed. Um, it was a very wealthy city. It was a city um, pursuing intellect and knowledge, um, but there was also quite corrupt in various ways. Um, and pagan worship was very prevalent. Um, there was lots of sexual morality in that city, and there was lots of kind of public gatherings of um, dedications to pagan gods. And food is quite an issue for these guys within the new church because they've been used to being in a climate whereby food is, is a commonplace. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a way by which political decisions are made. It was a social um, means by which people got together. And it was quite often that a big feast would be had after a, a kind of a, a pagan worship session where all people from the city would gather together and they would partake in this food that had previously been dedicated to the gods. And there's two kind of questions that are being addressed in this chapter. Firstly, it's their attendance at these feasts. So the, the church, the, the guys in the church here at Corinth had, had been used to attending these feasts and it was quite important to go to these. It was a place to, to be seen and to see those that are important in the city. And so they, they quite liked going and attending this. And they're saying to Paul, is it okay now as Christians that we can attend these feasts? And secondly, they're saying, um, on, the, on that note of food again, we often eat this food in our, in our own houses and for personal consumption. Is it okay if we eat this food in that setting as well? So there's the public setting and there's the private setting that they're really just wanting an answer on in view of this food dedicated to idol worship. And that's what Paul's addressing in this chapter. So we'll read through it together um, and then I'll look at breaking it down a little bit for you. So if you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Everyone got it? Okay, we'll read through from, from 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptised into Moses in the clouds and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become adulterers, as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. And do not complain as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overcome you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we, are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers in the altar? What do I imply then? That the food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply, what, I, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are you provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek your own advantage, that of others, but that of others. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean, the conscience of the other, not your own. For why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why should I be denounced that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offence to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the Church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, quite a a weighty passage there, and Paul is obviously delivering quite a serious message. You can tell by the tone of his voice that there's something um, that he wants people to hear and grasp in this message, and he uses um, quite strong choice of words. He's referring there to demons partaking in this um, pagan festival, and so he's he's not mincing his words, he's not messing around, and he really wants people to grasp this. Um, the way that Paul is kind of setting up his argument here is, first of all, he looks at some examples from Israel, and he's looking at the journey of Exodus and trying to parallel their example with that of what's going on in Corinth. And so we'll look at that first of all. He then looks to deal with the main kind of heart issue of idolatry and is really 
imploring to the guys in front of him not to do that because of the, the importance of what they're doing. And then he ends on looking at some specific application when he's talking about going to different people's houses and whether you should eat or you shouldn't eat. Um, and that's really, for them, the application of that heart issue for them to understand what it looks like in day-to-day -day life. So we'll walk through those three aspects, that, as Paul has done. Um, I don't um, assume to be able to argue it any better than him, so I'll follow the same route that he has. So we'll start off with the lessons from Israel then, um, verses 1 to 13. So um, Paul starts off in verse 10 making this statement, I do not want you to be unaware, or some translations say ignorant. And he's really saying to the church here, this is an important message, I really want you to grasp this. And by inference he's saying that people aren't aware of this message and that people are ignorant to this. And I really felt as I was preparing this that God was saying for, for Revelation Church, this is something I don't want you to be ignorant of, it's something that's important and I want you to be aware of it. Then Paul goes on to talk about um, the Israelites as they were going on the exodus through to the promised land. He makes the point of um, using all at the beginning of all his sentences here to say that they all passed through the cloud, they all went through the sea, they were all baptised into Moses, they all ate the same drink and they all drank the same food. And yet, Christ was, God was not happy with them, or he says he's not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. In essence, the point Paul's making here is that although they partook of God's goodness, they ate of the food, they drank of the drink that God supernaturally provided in the manna and from the rock when Moses struck it, they still were not exempt from God's judgment. There was a responsibility that came with partaking in this provision of God. And he's essentially saying to the church again, you are partaking in the goodness of God, um, you, you are under God as they were under God in that time, and yet there's a, a severity of a message that's coming out here. Paul was underestimating quite a lot when he was saying that uh, most of them displeased God, because if you know the story of Exodus, there was actually tens of thousands that were making the journey through the wilderness, um, and only two got through. So it's, it is a bit of an understatement to say most of them. Very few, if any, of them got through in reality because of the ways. Um, and so Paul is using this to say, look at this example that's been set for you. And the reason he cites of, of why most of the Israelites didn't get through into the promised land is because of idolatry. In verse um, 7, he says, Do not become idolaters as some of them did. And so then Paul goes on to list some of the characteristics or some of the resultant factors that happened because the people of Israel fell into idolatry. And it simply meant that they weren't serving God as their one true God. They fell away. They got distracted their eyes got pulled to the side and they started going back to some of their old ways. They started worshipping other gods and they started indulging in all sorts of practices that wasn't pleasing to God. And Paul lists them. He says they started to indulge in a sexual immorality. They started to test God. They complained to God. A lot of them said they wanted to go back to Egypt. Um, they didn't like what God was doing. And he's really saying here that beware church in Corinth because you're starting to look a little bit like the exodus here in Israel. I'm starting to hear some complaints. I'm starting to be observant of some practices that could not please God. It would have rang very true to the church in Corinth because they were familiar with the whole pagan practices of worshipping idols and eating food that was sacrificed to them, very similar to the instances that he's referring to here in Numbers and Exodus. So they would have been able to relate to that very closely um, and understand that Paul is really making a warning for them to say, look, it's happened before, please learn from the example of the past and don't go making the same mistakes. And at the end of listing all of these um, 
fallouts, really, from idolatry. Paul says, as a warning, if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. And really, he's just, I guess, addressing the, the pride that some of the Church of Corinth had and that they were quite sure of their standing with God. If you were here when Matt spoke a couple of weeks ago, he spoke about the knowledge that... Um, these people in Corinth prided themselves in. They were very sure of their scripture. They were very sure of their standing with God. And so Paul is really saying to them, beware when you think you stand because you could fall. Um, He addresses them to say, I don't want you to be unaware. Don't think that you are exempt from this just because you are Christians. Idolatry is something that's very real in your environment and I want you to be careful of not falling into it. So how is this applicable for us? As I said, for the church in Corinth, they were probably, it was commonplace to see pagan worship around them. They had idols probably in the, in the streets and in the temples, much like they would have seen in Israel. For us, in our Western society, we probably aren't used to seeing idols anywhere. We don't see shrines. Um, so how is it that we can relate to this message in terms of idolatry? In order to help us grasp this message, I've kind of got four aspects I want to talk about. And in uh, keeping with the Revelation preaching methodology of having an acronym for every sermon. I have, I have developed an acronym. It took a lot of hard work, I can tell you. In fact, it was the hardest bit of my preach. Um, so the, the acronym I'm using is IDOL, I-D-O-L. Um, and the first, the first uh, point in the first letter, the I, is to really identify with idolatry. And Paul is saying to the church here, it's something that is very real. It's something I don't want you to be ignorant of, and I want you to, to watch out for it. Um, in our sense, it's, it's a bit different and probably a little bit harder to start to identify with idolatry because it's not a term that's commonly used and it's not something that we would often cognitively engage in. It's not, not as obvious as a going into a temple and bowing down or burning incense or offering sacrifices. So what does it look like for us? In Ezekiel, we're told that um, the elders of Israel set up idols in their hearts So it wasn't just something that they actually physically went to and performed or bowed down in front of. It was something in their hearts as well. And essentially an idol in a heart is anything which is going to compete or contest the place that Jesus should hold in our heart, which is the first place. An idol for us is anything that can get in the way or can rob you of your focus with Jesus. The definition of idolatry is simply a worship of something that is not God a secondary or a a false or a counterfeit God. And so for us, idols in our lives might not look like statues, but they are things which rob our focus, our attention, our emotions, our finances, our peace, our concentration, all these kind of things that can take our distraction away from God. The reason why Paul is so keen that they hear this message and says, I don't want you to be unaware, I don't want you to be ignorant, is because we're all born as worshippers, if we look back at, right at the beginning in Genesis 1, we can see that God created us to worship him. We were designed to worship God forever and ever, and that's what we will do um, you know, in, in times that will come when we've died and we've gone to be with Jesus. But we were designed and created as worshippers, first and foremost. And so idolatry is essentially a form of worship. It's, it's something that we're all born to do. But because we're born into sin now, some people, if they don't know Jesus, their worship, their innate, created um, ability to worship turns away from Jesus and, and is attracted or drawn towards something else. And so everyone worships something because it's, it's what we're made to do. We're made to devote ourselves to something. We know that it should be Jesus, but if people don't know Jesus, then they end up devoting themselves to all sorts of things. 
if I was thinking for myself what, what might be an example, because it would only be to write really, to think about idolatry. And as I said, it's, it's easy to think of things that often are a big distraction or that pull your heart or pull your distraction. And for me, a couple of years ago, I had a real um, battle, I guess, in terms of my devotion, my focus, with, with um, doing exercise. It may seem a, a funny thing to you, but I was really, really loved just going to the gym. I could, I could go seven days a week for a couple of hours a day. You know, I, when I had the time, I loved doing it, and I could spend all my time doing that, and I loved doing it. But it came to the time when... I suddenly realized that actually there was a battle going on between spending time with the Lord and me choosing to go to the gym because I deemed going to the gym as something more enjoyable and that's what I wanted to do. And often the sacrifice that I made to my idol was my time with the Lord because I chose to spend time doing my exercise instead of spending time which I knew could be done spending time with the Lord. So there's there's things in your life which could be more subtle rather than a big idol. There are some extreme examples in the world around us. We don't have to look too far. Um, I live right near the Arsenal Stadium. I'm not a football fan, but um, I can see some very, very real and tangible idol worship that goes on in terms of football. And forgive me if you're a mad football fan, but uh, I literally see thousands trooping past my house to the stadium. It's like March of the Zombies, like, <laughs> like this. And, um, that, you know, they're... they're head to toe dressed in the Arsenal kit even the babies and the children they're chanting the songs, they're wearing the scarves they've got banners on their cars they're talking about it, they're singing about it their whole mind is set on it and, and really the definition of idolatry is devoting yourself in that sense to something and um, in, in the setting that I can see in, for, for Arsenal there's a lot of worship that goes on, it becomes idolatry for, for Christians when it takes the place or is contesting with your focus in terms of Jesus, the, the football in itself is not a bad thing but when it elevates itself to a position of, that takes on almost uh, godly characteristics then, that, then it can become an idol and our relationship to that thing then becomes worship because if I am totally sold out for Arsenal thank God I'm not um, you know, if my mind and my heart and my emotions and my finances and my spare time are always spent in Arsenal, then I'm essentially worshipping it with all that I am. And that's the place that Jesus wants in our lives. Celebrity culture is another example. Um, I work with a lot of kids often, and, and I've got my own child, and you see how children start to idolise celebrity. And it seems to be something that's very much in the fabric of our culture at the moment, that kids, rather than wanting a career, they want to be a celebrity. Um, and sometimes, to the absolute extreme, I was watching Jeremy Kyle last week. <laughs> I don't always get time to have such luxuries. And um, there was someone on there who is a chat show, by the way, if you don't know who Jeremy Kyle is, you shouldn't. Uh, there, was, there was someone on there who um, absolutely idolised Katie Price. I hope you know who she is. Um, and to the extent that they, they wanted, or they had had um, a series of plastic surgery um, procedures to make themselves look like Katie Price and they absolutely just wanted to be this person they wanted to be like them they wanted to talk like them they wanted to look like them and they'd spent all their money and all their efforts in becoming like this person Um, and whilst that is very extreme you see it an awful lot especially with the younger kids they want to be like a certain singer or um, I'm part of a mentoring program for for little kids and often we'll ask them what do you want to be when you grow up and do you know what the most popular answer is? Famous. 
famous. That is now a career, I have to tell you. <laughs> it's the number one career for most kiddies that they want to be famous because they've got these idols that they see that they just want to be like. Let's say, something we naturally do. So there's extreme examples, but for us it may, be, may not be that you want to look like Katie Price or that you're, you've got, you've got a, a football team that you absolutely love and adore. But I'm certain, as Paul was certain when he preached this message, that there are things that when it comes to spending time with the Lord, when it comes to dedicating your focus and your heart to the Lord, there are things that sometimes contest that. And that's what I'm talking about when we're thinking about idols in our own lives. Paul here is talking to a church. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to the unsaved. And so it's as relevant then as it, as it is now. And that's really what Paul's saying. So firstly, we need to recognise that we are um, susceptible to idolatry, even as Christians. Things come in our lives. We're in a very busy city and things can come and distract us. And as born worshippers, our natural in- inclination is to worship something, to throw ourselves at something. So we're susceptible to it. We can identify with idolatry. Second, the D, is that we've got to learn how to discover our idols. Um, obviously, Paul is going to go on to talk to them to say, you've got to get rid of them. <laughs> it's not good. But in order to do that, we need to work out in our own lives, if there's an idol there, how do we start going about discovering it? And it's actually quite easy. You just need to analyse your own life a little bit and ask yourself some questions. And I've written some questions that were helpful for me in thinking about, are there any things that set themselves up as an idol in my life? So some questions I was thinking about. When it comes to spending time with Jesus, what often takes its place if it's not with him? If there's one thing that you couldn't live without, what would it be? If you're feeling stressed or you've had a bad day, where do you turn to for comfort or satisfaction? Where do you spend most of your time? What do you wake up thinking about? What's the first thing on your mind as you wake up? Now, given if, you've had, if you're having a bad week, um, you, know, you can wake up thinking about work perhaps and it can be stressful. And that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is when you've consistently got something else on your mind, that something is taking your heart to such an extent that you can't take your mind off it. Now, it may be a thing like a, a hobby, like a football club, or it might also be something like anxiety or stress. It may be that that so consumes your mind. You're so worried about getting a job. You might be so worried about finding a partner, you might be so worried about what tomorrow is going to hold, that that is your, your thought for the whole day. And it's at the forefront of your mind. And, and essentially, that is what idol worship is. It's something that is distracting, that's stealing you away from what is more helpful or what is more beneficial for you to, to focus on. So in the time that Paul's talking to the church in Corinth... It was obvious to them what their idols were because they were bowed down to an idol such as um, Aphrodite, who was the goddess of beauty, and they would sacrifice to her. In our lives, people still probably sacrifice an awful lot to a goddess of beauty or to to the ideal of beauty. They, They become consumed with what they look like. They become unhealthily obsessed with worrying about what they look like or what other people might think. We may not burn incense to a goddess called Athena, who was the goddess of knowledge and intellect. But some people get so worked up and so hooked on acquiring knowledge and learning and growing their brains that they forget about Jesus. And so for us, we just need to really think about what, what is it that takes that place? It may be something that is consistent. It may be 
temporal, but if there's ever that battle, then I would argue that there is something in your life that can elevate itself to the place of idolatry at times. So how does Paul go on to answer this question? He first of all makes sure that they understand it. He then says, you know what they are, because by partaking in this food, you're essentially still aligning yourself with idolatry. And he goes on to kind of form his argument. So I'm going to read back from the text, uh, verse 14, where I left off earlier. And this is really his plea to get them to, to really seriously consider what they're doing. He starts off by saying, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Um, and he uses this term, dear friends, in only a, a handful of times in all of Paul's letters. And he's really expressing a heartfelt plea here. He's saying, it's really important and I'm really, the, the amount that I love you, I want you to get this. He's saying, beloved, please do hear this. Flee from idolatry, that's essentially his uh, advice. He is not saying, see how close you can get to idolatry and see you know, if you can walk both things as closely as you can. He's saying, get as far away from idolatry as you possibly can. Flee literally means to run away from. If you see it on sight, run from it. Treat it like it's an infectious disease that if you go near it, you're going to catch something. He's saying, get away from it. So it's very, very clear here in how to deal with idolatry. He's saying, do not let it have a place in your life. Get it out of your life. He then goes on to compare it in quite a serious context. So he starts to look at the communion, the Holy Communion. He talks of eating of the bread and drinking of the drink. Because he knows that, again, the people in Corinth prided themselves on their knowledge and they understood that by taking the communion that they were expressing that they were partaking of Jesus Christ. They knew that this was an example or a type of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he's saying, surely, if you believe that that communion is giving you access to Jesus, then if you're eating the food that's dedicated to idols, is that not got some deeper meaning as well? Has it not got a greater weight than just attending these festivals? And he's kind of caught comparing these two things. He doesn't just say it's bad. He actually goes on to say, I do not want you to be partakers with demons. It's not actually just something that's not good for you. It's something very, very serious here. Now, in chapter 8, he's already said that the idols are nothing, so it seems a bit contradictory. But essentially what he's saying is, whilst the idols are nothing, you're partaking in and your habitual um, attendance at these feasts starts to war, starts a little bit of a, a tension and a war in your heart. And I know that you can get hooked onto this. And essentially what he's saying is, when you start partaking in this, the devil can get on the back of that and he can start to use that to woo you, to steal your time, to steal your affections, to steal your focus from Jesus. Whilst we know the idols are nothing, there's something very serious behind it. And he's really imploring them to say, please don't do this. It's, it's a bit like having a, a two-headed monster. I was asking this morning if anyone's seen Dr. Doolittle. You know, do you know the push-me-pull-me animal? Obviously not. It's, it's something no one... <laughs> I'm too old. In, in uh, Dr. Doodle, there's this llama, which has two heads. Um, and this animal, it can't go either, like, it constantly going like this all the time because one, one animal wants to go over here and the other head goes like this. It, anyway, it was a good example, I thought. So Paul is really saying if you, if you have these two things, they, they can't work together. You're always going to be pulled in one direction. It's either Jesus or it's your idol worship. There's no, there's no in-between. It's making a clear line between the two. He kind of 
um, concludes his argument when he's looking at the comparison of communion and eating the food to say this. All things are lawful, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up or edify. So for the church in Corinth, they were really arguing for their liberty. Steph spoke uh, last week about the liberty that they were arguing for, and it it came up in chapter 8 when Matt spoke. And they they understood the freedom that was um, given to them through Jesus Christ. And they, they interpreted their freedom as being able to do whatever they like. And Paul is saying here, yes, you have your freedom. Yes, all things are now lawful for you under Jesus. But is it helpful for you? Is it building you up going to these festivals? Is it encouraging for you? Is it growing you in your love affair with Jesus? And, it, and there's an implied answer there where there is no. And he's asking them to come to a place of maturity to say, now that you're a Christian, yes, all things are lawful. Yes, you have freedom. But look at your lives. Look at the associations that you have. By going to these feasts, is it helping, is it helping you? Is it building you up? So for us, it's a, it's a serious consideration to say, are the things that are in essence giving us two masters to serve? Are there different things going on? Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. And that's the way it works. If we've got something in our lives that takes us on equal footing with Jesus, then there's always going to be a battle. If you're saying yes to one thing, then you're always going to be saying no to the other. And if in your mind you've got this contest as to what you do or to which you love more or to which you spend your time and energy and emotions with more, then one is always going to lose out. And essentially that, that's what Jesus is saying there, that there's, you can't have the both. It just, just doesn't work at all. The first commandment that was given to the Israelites in Exodus was to love the Lord your God and no other gods. It's, it's categorically clear God's its first commandment was to say, love me first and nothing else. And the second commandment really reaffirms this. He says, do not make an idol for yourself in, of any form, either from heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. And that's a pretty all-encompassing statement. He's saying, I'm your one God, love me first. Do not make anything out of the, the earth, the skies, the seas, and everything. Do not make anything other than me. And so... Paul is really saying to the church in Corinth here, think about your lifestyle, think about what's helpful for you, think about what's building you up. If you're confessing to love Jesus Christ and you're partaking of the body and of the blood, then it's probably not helpful for you to attend these festivals. This was a hard decision for them because it was something that they'd been used to be doing. It was very important socially and politically to go to these events, but he was saying, actually, it's not that helpful for you to go along to these. It's not good for your heart. It's not good for Jesus. And so it may be for you that you think, well, there's something that actually competes with Jesus in my life. And for me, I was thinking, yeah, the, you know, there's times when realistically my pastimes and my hobbies did, did compete. They really did with my time with Jesus. And he's saying, look, you, you've got to make a decision here. Is it helpful for you? You've got to decide what comes first because only one can. So how do we deal with that? Paul says, flee from the idol, run away from it, run away as far as you can. For us, it may be that if our idol is something that's built up in our heart, as Ezekiel says, you can't, it's very difficult to run away from yourself. It's very difficult to run away from a heart issue. What do we do then? In the Old Testament, they used to break down their idols. If they came across a, an old idol for, for one of the gods, the Christians used to break them, literally smash them to pieces. And um, 
So for us, how would we do that? If we've recognised that there's something in our lives that's not holding a rightful place, what do we do? Well, first of all, we have to repent. We have to recognise that Jesus should come first. And so the, the third letter in my acronym, the O of the idol, is to oust the idol. <laughs> I was very pleased when I found that word. <laughs> oust the idol. Get rid of it. Flee from the idol. Get it out of your life. Recognise that something is taking a place that only Jesus should take. Repent of it. And then it may be that you have to do something about it, something practical. So for me, my unhealthy obsession with going to the gym was something practical, and I actually just cancelled my gym membership, which was painful, I can tell you, because I loved going, and I still love going. But I cancelled it. I cancelled my subscription to a fitness magazine because it wasn't helpful for me, as Paul says. It wasn't building me up to constantly reminding myself of what I should do or what I thought I should be doing. So I cancelled that too. So there may be some practical application. If it's, a, if it's an idol in your heart that is, um, say, a, a common one, I think, would be um, a, a striving or, in a work situation, a, a, an idol of just being successful and, and constantly wanting to better yourselves, and that really just consumes your mind, that every day you're just wanting to, to pursue your career or pursue something other than God it's a, probably a harder thing to break down in that you've got to recognise it but it's, it's a life choice each day to say that I'm going to put Jesus first it's a life choice each day to say that I'm going to not worry about this I'm not going to be anxious about tomorrow I'm not going to be anxious about um, an unknown in my life I'm going to trust in Jesus and so it's a, it's a daily discipline um, that Paul talks about in some of his other letters um, it's a daily discipline to, to focus on Jesus. The last letter in, the, um, uh, in my idol acronym, the L, is to love Jesus because idolatry or worship is something that's natural to us, to worship something. And if we take away an idol, then we have to replace it with something, otherwise there's a, a void there, and we're born worshippers. So if we've recognised that there's something in our lives that competes with Jesus, we've repented of it, we've put it in its rightful place, then we need to elevate Jesus back up to the place where he should be. He should be first. He should be the first thing we wake of, we think about when we wake in the morning. My son, who's just learnt to speak, um, absolutely idolises his parents. And that's, you know, as, as children, that's what they do. That's all they, they know. They love their parents and they don't see anyone else. They just see their mum and their dad and that's all that they need. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic demonstration of how we should be with our father our godly father, because that's, that's how the kids are. And my son, you know, I'm not being big-headed or anything, but I am his absolute world, like no one else exists. The first word out of his mouth when he wakes up every day is just papa, papa. My wife's German, so he calls me papa. But, uh, and we've got our monitor, you know, the baby monitor, and he, he, doesn't, you know, he doesn't cry, he doesn't say anything, he just wakes up and goes, papa. It's the first thing on his mind. It's the first thing he says every morning. And uh, that's really how Jesus wants it to be for us. He wants him to be the first thing on our mind, an all-consuming thought, so that we're all about him. When people have an idol in their lives, it's very obvious. If people are all about the football, it's obvious, because you can observe it from their life. So my question to you is, if, you're, if you have Jesus as your, your first place in your life, is it obvious? Is it obvious when people look at your life and say, they are all about Jesus? Do you demonstrate it with your efforts? Do you demonstrate it with your passions? Do you demonstrate it with your words? Do you demonstrate it with your finances? Do you demonstrate it with your emotions? 
If Jesus is in his rightful place, then the answer should be yes. It should be obvious to those that look on. And that's essentially what Paul is saying when he concludes his argument. He's, he goes to the example then of private consumption of food, but really the point he's making is that it's, it's about the witness that you're making. So I'll just uh, finish off here by reading through Paul's advice. So we're going from uh, verse 24. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of others. It's an interesting way of answering their question about these private consumptions of food. He starts off by saying, it's not about you, it's about everyone else. He's saying, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So don't worry about it, just eat it. For the earth is the Lord's and and all its fullness. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. So he's saying here, he's agreeing with with what he said in chapter 8, it doesn't matter, you're free, you can eat this food, absolutely fine, even if you know that it's come from the temple and now it's in the meat market, don't ask any questions, just eat it. However, and this is the one clause, he says, if someone says to you, this food has been offered in sacrifice, do not eat it. So it's very different here. He says, if they've told you it's been offered in sacrifice, do not eat it, out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And he's talking about the conscience of the other person. Essentially, Paul's saying here, if you're going to someone's house and they tell you that this food has been dedicated to the idol and then they see you eating it, what kind of witness is that to them? What kind of mixed messages is that sending to them? They know that you're all about Jesus and yet you're partaking in this food which you've just heard is all about the idol. They're saying your lifestyle is sending some mixed messages. And really for us, that's the application that... If, we're, if our lives are all about Jesus, that should be a witness to all around. Jesus wants us as first place in his heart because, well, first of all, he wants us. But secondly, and probably more importantly, for those all around us, that we need to be a witness everywhere that we go, that it should be obvious that we're all about Jesus. In Acts chapter 18, before Paul went to the city of Corinth, God gave him a vision, and he said to him, in this city... There are many people. I have many people. God was speaking, saying, I've got many people in this city. And he he gave Paul this vision to say that there's many lives here that that I want. And so all all that Paul does then, especially when when he's in Corinth, he's got that in the back of his mind the whole time, that God has got people there. And all of his work is so missionary focused and he's, he's constantly encouraging the churches to have this missionary focus. And I was thinking that for us, As Revelation Church, God has given us a similar vision and said, there's people in this city that I want. There's people here that I have got my name on. And so Paul is really saying, sort yourself out. Be observant of where you spend your time. It's important who you associate with and what you associate with. I want first place in your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying... But it's because of the others. It's because of all these unsaved that I want you to worship me first. And the same goes for us. Because of all these people in London that God has given us a vision for, he wants him to be first in our lives so that it's obvious to all those around, so that we become a witness and a light to all those within London. So going back to Paul's plea, he says, my beloved, my dear friends, and he's really, really trying to meet them really speaking to their heart here, flee from idolatry. 
flee from it, run away from it. If there's anything in your lives that stops your focus on Jesus, if there's anything that gets in the way or robs you of spending time with the Lord, flee from it. Just get rid of it. The beauty is once you start to put Jesus in the rightful place, you can relate to everything else in a good way. And it doesn't become worship anymore because it's not a contest. But if Jesus is first, then that's all that matters. That's the place that he wants you to have and the place he wants to stay in your hearts. Paul ends it, I think, in a way, just by saying, look, it's, it's simple. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If you love something, if something is really number one in your heart, then you'll copy it. Like my little boy wants to copy everything I do. He'll touch everything I touch. He'll eat everything I eat because he loves me as his first. If we love our Father, if we love Jesus as our first, we will imitate him. And it's that simple, really. That's all Paul's saying. Just, just follow what Jesus did. If you love him, if he is your absolute one true focus, then just do what he does. And that's his plea to the church.